Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Today's show we'll be talking about the Sepang test. I am Stephen English and you can follow me on Twitter at Steve English GP. And with me today are Neil Morrison. Yes, and you can find me on Twitter at Neil Morrison 87 And David Amos. Hello, and you can find me at Moto Matters on Twitter. So before we get started, uh, we just want to make sure that everyone's following us on the various social media channels. So on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And we're also on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. So we'll move on to start the show, guys. And uh, obviously, David, you were out in, in Sepang. Um, what was the initial feelings that you saw from seeing bikes back on track? And it, it, to be frank, it was great. It was a, just a relief because we've had, uh, ever since Valencia, there's just been, um, I want to say a wall of bullshit, but that's not necessarily a, a particularly polite way of phrasing it. But that's basically what it was. It's just been, you know, the, the arguments about who's doing what and uh, uh, whose fault it was and uh, whether... Uh, Marquez let Lorenzo win and whether Rossi was had the total title stolen from all that sort of thing so it was nice to actually get to a track and see bikes uh, circulating in earnest and also circulating uh, on equal terms because for this was uh, the first time that everyone was on the Michelin tyres everyone was on the uh, spec electronics the unified software Again, that's something we're going to uh, we're going to spend all year uh, mumbling through trying to figure out what to call the bloody software, but uh, we shall soon get used to it. So everyone was all on the same software. Everyone's on the same tyres. Everyone has had a winter to think about what they needed to 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 do to the bikes to make the bikes better, to make the bikes more uh, uniform, uh, to actually adapt the bikes to the to to the Michelin's because they need they need something different, and. yeah, it, it it was it was quite an intriguing test, but it was also quite uh, complicated because everyone is. I mean, it, it really is right at the beginning of the of the development period. There's there's an awful lot of work still left to do, and that was that was really clear from uh, you know the 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 gaps on the timesheet from you know some people doing well, other people not doing so well. There was uh, there was a, there was a, there was a lot to sort of sit and digest. Yeah, exactly. Um, just to follow up what David was saying there, um, it was it was obviously great to see all the bikes on track. Um, we saw, you know, at, at the moment, times can still very much be deceiving to see Danilo Petrucci ending the test second and Hector Barbara uh, third fastest overall, I think is um, is testament to that. Um, but for me, it was also fantastic to see Casey Stoner out on track with uh, the MotoGP regulars. Um, the first time since Valencia 2012, I'm guessing that, um, that Stoner has actually been sharing a track with the likes of Rossi and Lorenzo. Uh, Pedroza and to see that he was also in quite competitive trim um, made the test all the more intriguing I felt. Yeah David what what did you think whenever you talked to Casey after each day that he was out on track because he he was on track for three days including the the first day just in the unofficial test as well. Yeah I mean my first impression of uh Casey was how incredibly relaxed he was. I've never seen him so relaxed in all my uh, in all the years in in GPs. It was obvious when he was um, when he was still racing. Uh, I mean, he loved riding. He's always loved riding, but he hated all the uh, all the rubbish that that came 
that came with actually writing all the press stuff and having to talk to it and all the schedule and um, uh, people asking him endless stupid questions. Um, fortunately, he'd forgotten just how stupid the questions are that I could put to him. So, uh, uh, so he was he was prepared for that. But he was he he was just really really relaxed. And to be frank, I was uh, I was surprised because I had heard from uh, people in Honda last year that um, uh, Stoner had been something like a second second and a half off the pace. Uh, uh, off the pace of the uh, uh, of the factory Hondas, but there was just absolutely no way that he was going to be that fast. So I think there might a little bit there might have been a little bit of mis- uh, misinformation uh, then. Yeah, I think it was interesting what Casey said after one of the days of the test. Whenever he actually came out and said that last year Honda were afraid that uh, he was going to be too slow to race, but that this basically just allayed any of those fears and showed just how strong he could be. But for me, the most interesting thing was probably just the fact that Casey said how surprised he was at actually being well-received and the positive reaction that he had. Like This is a, a double world champion that's come back. Just It might just be for a test, but even just to, to see that kind of reaction, it, it clearly meant a lot to him. Did you pick up on that as well, David? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely. Like I say, he was really, he was really relaxed. He was really positive. He was really, you know, friendly, uh, interesting. He was uh, the the great thing was he was uh, as fantastic as ever on the technical detail when he was in the paddock. If I needed something technical explained to me, it would always be Casey that I would go to because he was he had such a knack for explaining exactly what was going on uh, and and both precisely and clearly, which is something quite difficult um so he was you know he was back doing that and he yeah he he looked really happy uh and i spoke to someone who knows him quite well and uh they basically said you know the thing is casey wants to feel uh like he's contributing and it is really really clear that uh ducati are really really using that uh, they're really using stoner they're actually really making use of him uh making use of his uh skills his abilities uh he's you know he, he also being the you know the, the whole brand ambassador role is that is the same again it's all about being being relevant being actually used yeah no absolutely and i think also um Ducati have kind of played a blinder in signing casey in terms of um using him for as a as a motivational tool for for some of their other riders um i was speaking to one of the journalists that was out in sepang who had been speaking to someone who works inside one of the ducati teams and it seemed to this particular member of the ducati squad that it was you know casey signing was um the reason for it was was very clear and one of those reasons was to give a little bit of a, a kick up the the rear end to to the factory riders and to show that you know um there's no hiding behind um kind of excuses or anything like that um because casey we're showing that on the GP15, um, you know, despite being off a off a MotoGP bike for in the region of a year, um, not really having ridden competitively um, since Suzuka last summer, um, you know, he was still overall um, inside the top ten, and I think somewhere inside the top five on the final day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, f- first of all, uh, as regards the times, you have to remember that. Uh, 
up until the incident with Loris Bass's tyre, uh, which I think we shall uh, have to talk about later on, uh, everyone was using the soft rear tyre and going a lot quicker. And so half of the field were actually, actually set their times using uh, using the soft rear, while uh, others were using the hard rear and set their fastest time on the on the hard rear. So that's that's a big difference. There's, there's obviously you know half a second or something. But it, it, it's interesting you, your point about the uh, Ducati, the factory Ducati riders, because you also saw there was a real difference difference in attitude if you like between the uh, between the two andreas ianoni was excited and interested and uh, you know he, he was he was quite positive about the whole thing but dovicioso just looked um, I'm not even sure that terrified is that I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but he didn't look. He, you could sort of like look at him and see, thinking, "Oh Christ, not this again!" Because uh, this is exactly what happened at, at Repsol. You know, at Repsol Honda they signed uh, they signed Casey when um, when Dovizioso was there, and then and then Dovizioso ended up being chucked out. Yeah, I was going to say it definitely had the look of deja vu for uh, uh, yeah, for yeah. Dovi. But um, I thought it was interesting as well what Casey actually said about the Ducati, and he said this is a title winning bike. Yeah, and he's clearly happy enough to put an awful lot of pressure onto both Ianone and Davizioso as well. And we saw it last year, time and time again, that that bike looked capable of winning races, especially early in the season. But it just didn't quite get the results for them. How much of a step do you think will having Casey on board actually help improve that package just to to get them over the line? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean. First of all, Stoner spent all of his time on the GP15 rather than the GP16, uh, where which is what the factory riders were were con- uh, concentrating on. Uh, the factory, the the GP16 is just it, it, it's a very small difference. Uh, um, there's a very small difference. It's a little bit more precise in steer in steering and entry. Um, the throttle response was a little bit better as well. Um, so there's not that much of a uh, of a difference between the two. But I think the the real benefit to having Stoner riding uh, the bike is actually just setting everything up, setting the electronics up, getting uh, a decent setup, figuring out uh, you know the right uh, the right balance to the bike. And again, he said they were just basically going. They were taking massive steps in in setup changes just to see. What it uh, you know what what the bike does when you when you uh, when you do that and having someone of that at, at that level uh, run through those changes actually makes a uh, makes a really uh, a real difference because they can both understand and explain exactly what's going on uh, and I, I I mean I have to say that I think Michele Piro has done a fantastic job as a test rider for for Ducati anyway uh, and this really is I mean. You know, it's like the icing on the cake. It's like, you know, Michael, uh, Michele Piro squared almost. So it's just, it's, yeah, outstanding. Yeah, well, um, you know, in one respect, I guess you could say that, you know, because Casey hasn't been in regular competition for the last three, yeah, three years, um, maybe he wasn't so set in his ways in terms of, you know, Bridgestone tyres and used to the, the electronics that all the bikes were running last year. Um, you know, so in some respects, he didn't have to do some of the unlearning uh, that other riders did, um, you know, to get accustomed to these, you know, the new regulations. But, you know, for a guy that was still having only very sporadic uh, audience as a Honda test rider to come back after more or less three years away and be uh, very fast was impressive. Um, I think uh, I noticed on some occasions he was asked about whether he was, you know, pushing for a lap time. And, you know, he was kind of very insistent that, you know, you only, you know, I think he was talking about the soft tire. He was saying that you only fit that whenever you really want to try and, you know, destroy the opposition mentally. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, in, 
the hands of Stoner. Then we also saw that, um, you know, Petrucci and Redding were, were up at the sharp end with the GP15. You know, that does seem to be, um, with its kind of power delivery, with its engine character, you know, a very good bike. Um, and you would have to say in the, in the hands of Redding and, and Petrucci, you know, they should, be, they should be aiming for top sixes quite regularly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make a very good point about uh, uh, about Stone not having to unlearn any of the Bridgestone stuff because I think that was one of the differences you saw between Valencia and uh, and Sepang was just you know people have gone away and they've sort of the 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 the, the, the last vestiges of Bridgestone have seeped out of their muscle memory and so they had to uh, they had a chance to sort of you know think of something or, or approach it with a slightly more open mind and obviously Stoner it's been such a long time uh, that he would that he raced on bridge or that he you know even rode competitively it was over a year since he last rode competitively on Bridgestone so that helped and also like you saw the uh, um, less ex- if you like almost the less experienced riders doing quite well and you also saw some riders I mean the, the, the whole Michelin story is quite interesting because you really see that some people are struggling David Chiosa is having a terrible time trying to get used to the uh, uh, to the Michelins. Um, uh, Lorenzo is just blowing every way, uh, everyone away on the on the Michelins. It really is right now. I think what we're seeing, the times that you're seeing, uh, is much more about who's adapting to the tyres than anything else. What well, What was the general feeling about the tyres, though, David? Because when myself and Neil were at the Hareth test, a lot of the riders were saying that the tyres weren't actually that bad. Now that they were able to start working on setups. They were able to see that the that the Michelin tire wasn't wasn't that bad on the front end compared to what they had been expecting, what they had been experiencing when they were using it just on the Monday tests. Was it any better at this test now the teams have figured out the weight distribution, figured out basic geometry of the bike? Yeah, well, I mean, there was there were definitely two things. Firstly, the uh, the tires of the tires themselves have improved. Uh, the new tires, which uh, Michelin brought to, uh, I think they tested them with Mike DiMelio and, and Michele Piro either in December or January at Jerez um, uh, in, in a completely private test. That was already a big step forward. Um, that was what surprised a lot of the riders at uh, 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 at Sepang. They all said. You know, these tires are already a lot better. They, they, they you could get. Uh, I think Rossi said something along the lines of, "It's much easier to. You can get much closer to the limit than you used to be able to." Um, and you could, you got a lot more feedback. They're still not perfect because there were still a few crashes. But basically, even after the first day, you could, you could tell there was a difference because there weren't very many. There were very, very few crashes that first day. You know, it was just like normal testing rather than everyone going down every ten minutes. Yeah, because I think that uh, Espargaro said that uh, now it was just much more ingrained in you that you had to break in that straight line yeah you couldn't uh, trail into the corner and things like that and then for some of the other riders i know ian one was saying again that um you know with the new electronics and the new tires that he was finding the bike a lot more fun to ride as well so it seems that the negatives that we had been hearing about with the michelins are now just basically being accepted this is what the tire is because i know whenever i was talking to riders through last year that were testing testing the tires the one thing that they kept saying was that the tire isn't a bad tire it's just a different tire yeah it, well yeah. Yeah. 
two things. Firstly, uh, uh, definitely, again, as you said previously, uh, another big difference is just the, the, the difference in bike setup. I mean, uh, all of the rider, all of the teams have gone away and thought about it and changed the, the uh, geometry and the weight distribution. And so the, the base setup of the bike was completely better. Rossi said, you know, if you tried using the Bridgestone setup on these Michelins, the bike was completely unridable. Uh, now they were coming to Sepang with a setup that was... Uh, a proper uh, Michelin setup and also about trail braking because I went and, and looked I went into turn one uh, because in turn one at Sepang you can get quite close on the inside uh, and actually see what the riders are doing and uh, I was you know there's all this talk about well you got to do all your braking in a straight line and then pitch it in they were still braking all the way to the apex Um but I asked Cal Crutchlow about it, and he said, well, yeah, 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 all right, yes, we are still braking all the way to the apex. It's just the differences in brake pressure. You know, they are, they've got, they're holding the front brake all the way to the uh, to the apex and then releasing it once they get on the gas. But it is uh, less. They're not using the same amount of, of real pressure on the brakes. Yeah, that's one thing that Davizioso was saying. I think he was, um, when he was talking about having to adapt his lines, change his style, Davizioso obviously is a, a very late breaker. He was kind of saying that if you if you enter the, the, the corner with too much brake pressure, basically you mess up the middle of the corner. And it seems that at the moment, the middle of the corner is one of the places where the Michelin really is very strong indeed. You know, that mid-corner section when you're, when you're lent over and you're kind of adjusting your body weight to get on the gas. Um, would that be right, David? Yeah, I mean, uh, f- from going down and looking, I-, I didn't see anyone who looked to be in real trouble with the w- with the tyres. They all looked, I mean, uh, they had different problems, uh, but yeah, I mean, I didn't see anyone who was really, really having an absolutely terrible time in uh, actually riding. Yeah, and another thing that um, that was quite notable. Bradley Smith was, I think, the only rider in the final day to do a full race simulation. Yeah. And, and in that time, he was saying that the, the durability of the, the Midtland tires was actually longer than uh, the Bridgestones. He said Bridgestones, it was normal for them to go off between six, eight laps. It was quite normal for them to, to suffer a drop. Then the tire would be quite consistent from there on in. Um, whereas he said in his race simulation, he said there was about twelve laps where the Michelins were, you know, running like very competitively, very um, consistent. It was just that when they did drop, then the riders with you know the the kind of the dumbed down electronics were obviously. Where he in particular was finding, um, you know, finding it was more problematic and more difficult to ride um, physically as well as uh, as just being on the bike. Yeah, because that falls in line with the basic principles that Michelin had whenever they came into the series. If you talk to anyone at Michelin from when they signed their contract, the first thing that they said was, we want to make tires that are durable and that at the end of a 45-minute race are still fit to uh, to still race on. It's not like what we're used to seeing in racing where at the end of 45 minutes, we want the tire to fall apart, we want to have maxed it out. Michelin want to use it as a way to show the endurance capabilities of their tires. It's a similar way that they've they've approached basically every series that they've been involved in since they left MotoGP, and they're just bringing across their principles for what they want to use this series to market their, for their product, and that that's basically falls into line with what Brad's saying: the two thirds distance, the tire is still good, and then the final third, there's a bit of a drop, but uh, a lot of that comes from just not being able to manage the electronics as well at this time too. Yeah, I mean, that was the one thing that really sort of struck me through all of this is that there's going to be a lot more about um, 
uh, tire management and also bike management through uh, in the coming season because uh, there was a uh, uh, Pete McLaren a crash shot they did a fantastic interview with uh, Corrado Cecchinello uh, or uh, Cech- sorry not Cecchinello Cecchinelli um, uh, about the new electronics and the capabilities of the new electronics um, the new electronics uh, the, the, the old electronics were incredibly clever and they would uh, constantly uh, monitor the amount of grip that the tyre still had left and then automatically adapt themselves to the amount of grip. The new electronics is uh, you have, you know, one setting, you set your, uh, you, you know, you, you set your TC to nine, if you like, and you've got nine until um, uh, until the grip runs out and uh, it, it doesn't change itself. Uh, riders will have multiple maps, but they'll have to actually judge when to change maps. They'll have to think about changing maps. And certainly, uh, so for example, I remember, I think last year, uh, Andrea Iannone had a few problems uh, managing maps and also the year before. Yeah, exactly. There was a, there, there, there's for young riders coming in, and especially, uh, shall we say, the, um, the 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 riders who are not going to be candidates for Nobel prizes. They uh, they definitely have more uh, more problems actually mentally managing the race in terms of the uh, in terms of the electronics, deciding when is the best thing to do that. I, I, and I think um, it really is going to benefit uh, a rider like Bradley Smith because he uh, um, he is a a very intelligent rider can think about what to do can and will actually plan um, uh, plan his race out use the electronics correctly and use it to actually uh, manage um, uh, manage tires better yeah one of the interesting things that he said after his uh, his race simulation on the final day was that he expects um, to be more of a yo-yo type pattern in races where you'll maybe see some riders that normally wouldn't be at the front at the start of the race when the tires have that 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 good grip um, and the electronics aren't you know uh, aren't really coming into play so much um, and then whenever the tires drop down he was saying that he could he could envision uh, a race where you know several of these riders that might not be you know accustomed to be at the front would then drop away and guys like himself perhaps who are a little more savvy when it comes to to race management um to tire management as well um can then rise through the pack um so that should be that should be something to watch out for um in the in the first couple of races yeah definitely i think it, it um uh, some of the bridgestone races it would be especially i'm thinking of the time you know 2009 2010 uh, people would uh, line up uh, and the order would be set sort of after about the second lap, and then that, that would be it. Uh, I think what we're going to see in these races is that uh, the, the riders will spread out a little bit in the first half of the race, uh, and then in the last, especially in the last quarter or third of the race, um, things are going to get very, very complicated. You're going to suddenly see riders going a lot slower other riders not going you know maintaining their pace so it's going to be a lot more interesting just especially that sort of last part of the uh, last part of the race it's going to be interesting to see who's who's capable of managing that yeah, yeah, and it seems like it'll be the final third, um, you know, when there is that tire drop off and riders are, are having to depend more on their physical condition and their ability to ride on worn tires and electronics that maybe aren't working just exactly as they, they're used to them. Um, that should be, that should be when, it's, when it's interesting for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're still going to see basically the same top four at the uh, at the front because they're the best riders in the world, um, uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're going to be good at it. Lorenzo... 
Rossi, Pedrosa, Marquez, they all know how to manage a tyre. They can all manage a tyre to, to, to the end of the race. They all understand how the electronics work. So I don't think there is going to be a huge um, difference in that. But certainly you will see uh, there is an opportunity for riders, for, for, for some riders to take advantage of the... Uh, um, of the opportunities of the the, the you know the, the the changes in 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 how the bike is is behaving and uh, and the tires are behaving and and how the electronics are managing the bike and uh, uh, to actually make some inroads into in, into the front runner so it's 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 yeah I'm, uh, again I'm really looking forward to it I think it's going to be a very interesting season we'll obviously talk about the factory Yamaha and the factory Honda riders in a wee while but just see, just to finish off talking about Michelin. The Loris Bass crash was one of the most terrifying things that most of us have seen in a long time. When you look at the photo sequences from it, it's it's clear just how close that was to being a much more serious accident than uh, what actually happened for Loris. But what actually happened, David, uh, within the media centre when uh, when the tyre exploded? Well, there was the uh, well. First of all, the the media centre in in Sepang, the uh, the TV quality of the because they didn't have uh, the, the the you know the full the normal full camera setup which they have around the around the track. They're using a lot of the CCTV cameras uh, to display images, and the CC the quality of CCTV in Sepang is just outstanding. I mean, seriously, people were. Uh, people start to take the piss out of me because I was uh, I was complimenting I was geeking out on how good it really is. Um, so I was actually watching the monitor. I just I, I just happened to glance up as Baz came down the straight, and it just looked like his bike exploded. It looked really really uh, it looked terrifying. Uh, and then it took the marshals uh, well the best part of a minute to actually red flag. Uh, the race because they were they, there was a miscommunication with race uh, race direction. Um, uh, they didn't want to take initiative. They should have taken initiative and just red, red flagged the whole incident. So that was there were still riders coming down, uh, and that got that that was quite scary to watch. Um, but it's I mean what happened. Also, there was a lot of uh, toing and froing over whose whose fault it was, and whether it was down to the Ducati, uh, whether the engine had gone. It was fairly clear. It was, Clear quite quickly that it wasn't the engine because there was no there was no oil on the track. Um, whether it's a suspension, whether it was a a, a problem with the Ducati, whether a, a bolt had broken or a mounting point on the on the swing arm, um, uh, or whether it was down to either the team or Michelin. And in the end, they, it got into a little bit of a uh, yeah. There was a little bit of sort of towing and froing over whose fault it was that the that the tire was was underinflated. But that was that was basically what what it turned out to be. Yeah. It turned into a real tit for tat at the end, similar enough to what we've seen in the past with uh, Dunlop and the Moto Two tires. And I know Neil, you've looked at the tire pressure sensors in Moto Two Two in the past. We're going to bring that into Moto GP now. How important do you think that is, just for safety reasons, just to to allow us to know for sure what pressures there are going to be in the tires? Yeah, I think it's very important indeed. Um, I think it was in the Saxon Ring one year in Moto2. I'm not sure exactly when it was, uh, maybe a few years back, uh, maybe two years ago, that um, some of the Moto2 teams had been had been adjusting uh, tyre pressure to try and uh, try and get some more grip out of those rear tyres. Um, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a no-brainer really, um, especially when you have a soft compound that um, perhaps the, the, the degradation of it is, is not truly known. Um, uh, for me, it just seemed like an absolute no-brainer. Yeah. Uh, also, it was hardly a surprise that it was that it happened to Loris Baz because he's the tallest and the heaviest rider, uh, which 
also means just practically his body is in a different place to someone like Danny Pedrosa, who's, uh, you know, his arse is somewhere else. Um, uh, we've got the heaviest rider on the most powerful bike. Um, uh, also, he's a little bit way, uh, he, he's a little way down the, the, the timesheets. And so the temptation is to, you know, take a, uh, take a, a little bit of air out the tire in, in searching for a little bit more grip. Um, because the Baz had already had that happen to him earlier that day uh, not the tyre exploding but uh, a, a separate tyre had also started losing chunks of rubber because they were underinflating it so it, it wasn't surprising that in the end it was his tyre that actually went up uh, that they ended up blowing yeah because when the incident happened as well on Twitter there was an awful lot of discussions about whose who's, who's fault basically this lies in is it the team's fault for running the pressure is low or is it Michelin's fault for not enforcing a, a minimum pressure with people in the box. For me, teams are always going to try and find that uh, that edge when they can get it. So it's up to the tyre manufacturer, it's up to the tyre supplier. They've got a guy down in the box, it's up to them to, to check the pressures. What what was your thoughts on that as well then, Neil? Because it is an element that's going to be talked a lot through the season. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm obviously I wasn't there, so I'm not I'm not exactly sure. But from reading David's uh, David's roundup piece on the Tuesday, I think it was, there was um, the people that were in charge of uh, of you know measuring the tire pressure. They were Michelin technicians, is that right, David? Yeah, no, they were. I mean, yeah. the, 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 basically, they were the Michelin technicians, and they're they're the, they're the people in that who have a pressure a pressure uh, you know a pressure gauge in their hands and actually measuring the tire pressure. Where where does the fault lie? Is it with the team or is it with Michelin not enforcing the minimum pressure? Um, yeah, I would say I would say you would have to say one of one of the it would probably be the responsibility of the of the tire company. Um, they're ones that have tested this tire um, on past occasions um, with their test riders. Um, they should. Be be aware really of you know where um, the pressure will become sensitive and where, where things like this can happen um, obviously as David said could have been a bit of an anomaly with uh, with Loris Baz due to his size due to his weight um, but yeah I would say if there's a if there's a Mitchell guy that's kind of measuring the tire pressure in the inside the team's um, inside the, the team's uh, garage then you know it's hard to kind of point the finger beyond them um, I think it's also worth pointing out that Ali Espargaro was quite upset really he felt that um, once the incident happened I think the track was was closed it was red flagged whenever Baz crashed and then it was opened again and some riders were allowed to go out Espargaro said that um, some of the guys from Michelin came into his garage to say like look if you want to go back out again that's fine and he said at this point he still wasn't quite sure what the, what the cause of the crash was and he felt that it was wrong of Michelin to do this uh, to let riders back out on track when there was a bit of an unknown um, you know as to you know the safety of these softer compound tires yeah that that was that was very odd because and confusing for us who were there as well because you know they sort of uh, I think they stopped for about 20-25 minutes something like that maybe half an hour uh, riders went back out again and they literally went out for about 10 minutes and then it got called off again while they came back and, and, and had another look but I mean there were uh, uh, because obviously when it happened we all sort of ran out into pit lane or well pit lane and the paddock and stuff to try and find out and there was uh, lots of important people running backwards and forwards refusing to answer questions and saying we're trying to find out what was going on 
Uh, but uh, the, the fact that they then came back and said, um, "Well, we are withdrawing the soft tyre and raising the minimum and the, the, the minimum pressure for the rear to I think uh, uh, I think that advised to something like 1.5, uh, 1.4, 1.5, and they'd raised it to either 1.7 or 1.8 um, uh, bar. To that's you know." clear enough what the problem with the tyre was and where you know whose fault it was really obviously the next test is going to be at Phillip Island that's another real testing track for tyres we've seen a lot of instances in the past there Mitchell won't take the soft tyre to that test but it will be another indication just to see where they actually are because seeing as uh, in previous tests they generally only would have a few bikes out on track at any given time so more and more riders spinning laps and uh, just the more mileage on it, they're they're just gaining more info. But the the PI test should give us a good indication of just what sort of what to expect from the tires on a longer stint as well. So it should be interesting to see what actually comes from that. Yeah, because I mean, Phillip Island. There, you don't learn well. The only thing that you uh, uh, that you learn at Phillip Island is is how brave your rider is. You don't learn very much about your uh, about bike setup because if you look at the various bikes which have won there over the years, who's competitive there? Well, Superbike's exactly the same as MotoGP. I mean, the Suzuki World J Six R Thousand won uh, won last year. It's all about uh, it, it's all about bravery and being able to use corner speed and stuff. And it's not really about uh, about bike setup. So that Phillip Island test is basically just a uh, a tyre test. It's, it's just there for Michelin to make sure they don't um, uh, get it horribly wrong during uh, during the race in October and also I think to maybe to test rear tyre for Argentina as well, which is again another track which puts an awful lot of load and stress on a tyre. Yeah, because even the, I was in Aragon for the, for the Superbike test last week and uh, talking to a couple of the riders about Phillip Island and uh, Jonathan Ray said that uh, basically we'll go down for the two-day test everyone will spin lap record pace and in the 30s and things like that but the race pace is always going to be much slower than that it's basically a, a race of attrition you're trying just to win at the slowest possible speed rather than actually going flat out for the full race yeah and I think when you look back at the the Grand Prix uh, Phillip Island in October basically everyone was struggling with rear grip bar Mark Marquez through the whole weekend um, and I think it was only really on the Sunday where the Yamahas were able to to take profit of uh, some setup improvements and advancements that gave them the, the speed to run with him during the race um, but pretty much everyone was struggling I remember Davizioso was saying that he was having to change his lines throughout the weekend to try and combat uh, the lack of you know the, the sheer amount of spinning that he was getting especially in the last section so yeah as you said David I think it's more or about uh, you know the testing endurance of a of a tire. Also, um, you know one of the one of the, the comments um, that was most interesting from Sepang was um, Stoner was talking about the reason why some riders were falling at turn five at Sepang, which is the kind of downhill left hander. Um, and he was saying that sometimes when the bike goes light, you know forty five degrees, the, f- the front feeling goes a little light, and that's kind of where it, you kind of feel it could it could go away from you, it could tuck away. Um, and you look at uh, at Phillip Island and maybe somewhere like Stoner Corner, for example, turn three where you're going in downhill um, really, really fast. It has to be full of confidence. You know, it's going to be another uh, very interesting test um, to see to, to see just how that, that front performs. The thing with turn five as well at Sepang is you're off the gas, then getting on the gas, and it just changes the load from front to rear and back to... So you do, you do get an awful lot of forces going through there that just cause instance as well and we saw in the test there last year just how treacherous that corner could be and then this year as well Lorenzo went down there a couple of other riders too so it is just a case of learning how to get the most from the Michelins as well 
Yeah, but also, I mean, the, the the crashes which happened at that corner were different to the ones last year because last year um, it was the same crash for everyone. It was basically, um, uh, once they guide to the corner on the gas, uh, they, it was just pushing the front away. The front was just, uh, uh, the, the rear was just was just overpowering the front and they were and they were losing the front. Whereas uh, this year there were, t- there were two different kinds of crashes. There were, there were crashes on entry and there were crashes on exit. But then both sort of at that transition point when you're going over that really sensitive, uh, that that that's that very sensitive moment of uh, of, of a tire. So uh, or that that sensitive point of the part uh, of the tire that that, that uh, Casey was talking about. So um, yeah, as you say, Philip Palmer is going to be real uh, a, a real test of the tire more than anything. I don't think we're going to learn anything about the bikes, but we will learn an awful lot about how well the uh, the, the mission is going to hold up. So one of the riders that crashed was Lorenzo, but that was pretty much the the only blemish on his uh, copybook this week. He he looked absolutely dominant, David, from any of the, the footage that we saw when you analyse the lap times. Like there's a huge gap there, and he he just seems already to have clicked with the Michelins. What what did you think when you? I know you were saying that you're up at turn one, turn two. What did you think whenever you were out looking at him trackside? Yeah, he just looked fantastic. I mean, we uh, we I mean, I walked around basically from turn one through uh, turn two, turn three, uh, turn four, and then down to turn five uh, because you can come back into the paddock again. And uh, seriously, in Sepang, if you got around to turn five, then you're about ready to die anyway, uh, just from uh, just from the heat and the uh, uh, and the humidity. But uh, I mean, yeah, Lorenzo. Just looked absolutely fantastic. He didn't. He looked really smooth. There was no. I couldn't really see that much of a difference uh, with any of the. Uh, well, I, I couldn't really see a difference with with Lorenzo from from before on on Bridgestones. Um, hard to say whether he's getting the same lean angles. I asked uh, a couple of our photographer friends, uh, uh, Cormac Ryan Meenan and, and and Andrew Wheeler about it, and they both said, "No, I can't really see. Can't really see any difference." to them on track they look more or less the same um but there was i mean actually watching them ride the the bigger problem seems to be much more about um electronics and 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 bike management and 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 all the rest of it the uh the 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 yamahas were absolutely sorted and uh, lorenzo was just yeah well it was impressive to see He, he was just he looks completely at home. He looked like he'd been riding Michelin's, you know, for the past, you know, two years. Yeah, because we were talking about this off the air about the uh, the work that Yamaha do to develop their bike with Nakasuga, and he he went out at Sepang. He was using minimal electronics, and basically Yamaha just developing the bike from the mechanical side forward, rather than thinking in terms of we can use the electro- electronics to solve a problem. Do you think is that one big advantage that they're going to have over, especially Honda this year, then just to be able to get up to speed quickly? Absolutely. I mean, the, the really the, the really big difference for uh, both uh, the Honda and well for Honda Ducati and uh, and Yamaha was the you know both Yamaha and Ducati were just they they, they not really having any problems with the electronics. I mean the the riders complain is a is a bit where they all say that you know said the same thing. These these electronics are a lot a lot less sophisticated than the than the old ones were. Rossi also said that Yamaha had made a really big step with the electronics. Um, 
but I, to me, the, the the very design philosophy of, um, especially of Yamaha, but also of Ducati, is to build a bike which is rideable. And uh, if you've got once you've got a rideable bike, it's much easier to extract that last bit of that last one two percent of uh, of performance from a good bike than it is uh, with what Honda do, which is just build the most fierce and fearsome machine imaginable and then try and tame it with ele- with electronics and, and and the trouble is the honda were really really struggling with uh, uh, with with electronics all of the uh, honda riders were struggling with electronics cal crutchlow said that, that even just making a change uh, it was taking them 20 or 20 minutes just to just to change the setup on the electronics so uh, they yeah they had so much so much work to do um, to try and tame it. I think their philosophy of building something fearsome and, tr- and t- tuning it back is is really you know getting them in trouble. Yeah, I think when you look at um, when you look at the you know the timesheets, um, you know Lorenzo was one second faster than everyone else on the first day, more or less the same on the on the final day. Um, something certainly seems to have clicked. Um, I think on the I was watching the Dorna feed on either the first or second day of, of testing and um, the technical Dorna technical director, Danny Aldridge, was, was speaking and he was saying that, um, you know, the fact that Yamaha now have 22 litres rather than 20, um, you know, it's basically a 10% increase of, of, of fuel, you know, extra compared to what they had last year. You know, you'd have to say that that is, that's, part of maybe one of the reasons why things are, are going so well for them. Also, as you, you kind of alluded to before, David, I mean, even we saw it at the Valencia test from Tuesday to Wednesday at the, at the close of last year. On the Tuesday, Rossi and Lorenzo were both saying how you know difficult the electronics were. It was like stepping back in time. Yet by the Wednesday, you, you know, you kind of got the impression that they already had got a, a good grip on them. Um, their comments were already a lot more positive and they were saying that, you know, just overnight and um, basically just having one more track day, they were able to they were able to kind of get a, good, a better grip on on how they worked, um, the management of the system, and yeah, it was it was just a surprise really, considering that um, they basically lost a test at the end of 2015. Um, they hadn't really been focusing on on setting the bike up for Michelin in the last part of 2015 either, because of you know the two riders being involved in the championship challenge, um, and for them to come up and uh, to arrive and be so dominant and look so good, I think is really a testament to the the technical team they have working behind that one. Yeah, but the. the- bike is just so good it is yeah. just such a good bike um i've said before i think it's probably the best uh, the, the the best racing motorcycle ra- uh, racing motorcycle that's ever been built um and that's not just with you know the 2015 one with all of the yamaha electronics that's just as a basic motorcycle the the only thing that it's missing is a little bit of of, of top end but you know it's not that often that uh, that you had real problem you know the, the top speed is is only really a problem when your rivals can match you in every other area uh, the, the 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 yamaha was so much better everywhere else and it you know it, it had it even with the with twenty liters of fuel, it had a good throttle response. Having more, having less sophisticated electronics, but more fuel made a big difference. And Rossi really said, you know, the, the uh, Yamaha had made a really big uh, step with the electronics, and uh, but he'd always had confidence in, in, in the Yamaha uh, in Yamaha's engineers because it's what they always do; they could always manage it. Yeah, they basically have two of the best test riders on the grid in Lorenzo and Rossi. Um, so it really, I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise that they're in this position. But um, just I think the margin um, that they have over, over the yeah. rest of the fields um, was, was quite shocking. Yeah, and it seemed like Lorenzo, um, he was saying that... Um, 
the M1, perhaps in the past, you know, just its characteristics weren't totally suited to, to the Bridgestones. He said, you know, being able to break that a little bit earlier, you know, Lorenzo isn't a notoriously late breaker as such, um, but having that extra rear grip as well, he said, was just um, was just paramount to, to feeling immediately comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. You saw also with, um, I mean, if you look at the timesheets, it looks like Valentino Rossi's uh, a way behind, but he's not that far off, and he's clearly the best of the rest, uh, better than the uh, better than the, better than the Hondas. He also, again, I think he set his fastest time on the hard tire rather than the soft tire, and they were actually improving from day to day. Whereas, uh, especially some of the Ducatis, I mean, if you look at Petrucci, for example, Petrucci set a really fast headline time, but he set it on the soft tire um, on Tuesday morning. On, yes, exactly on Tuesday morning before they took the t- the, 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 the 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 soft tire away uh, uh, Stoner Lorenzo Rossi they all set their, their their best time on a hard tire which means that they were making progress really making progress throughout the throughout the test and actually working on working on the bike yeah yeah and also whenever you whenever you look back at 2015 in the dry races um, in which Lorenzo had the greatest amount of problem I guess you could say like Argentina um, Saxon Ring I think Assen as well was maybe one of them you know usually that was because he didn't have the, the rear grip I know it's Saxon Ring in particular he was complaining he just didn't have the rear grip to open um, the throttle where he wanted to and to just the grip wasn't there to be able to, to grip and to, you know to push him forward um, whereas it seems with the added grip of these Michelins you know that could be that could be quite uh, quite another weapon in his armory. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it plays right into right right into his hands because the I mean, when he was the um, Bridgestones that he complained or the the, the Bridgestone tire he liked was the one with the soft edge, which uh, gave that little bit more you know drive out of the corner, and that's uh, the, the the Michelin has has that you know built into the tire. You know, it's part of the it's part of the characteristic of the tire. So yeah, I it really um, uh, it, it's going to be it's going to be a tough a tough year for everyone who isn't called Jorge Lorenzo. Yeah, and the one thing to remember about Lorenzo as well is with everything we're hearing about the new tires, it's going to be very hard to overtake especially if it's against someone like Lorenzo. If he hits the front, he's pretty much unbeatable anyway once he's in front. But if you give him a tyre that you can't break with a lot of pressure all the way into the corner, it's going to make it very difficult to actually get past him as well. I I think you'll be able to break with pressure, but the trouble is... uh if you do break with pressure, you're going to end up losing out. Um, the braking distance—it it seems that the braking distance on the on the Michelins is is longer, which is you know good for racing because the longer you have to brake, then uh, the, the the more opportunities there are to overtake. Um, but yeah, I mean it's going to be about how much risk you want to take. Are you going to are you going to be be prepared to sacrifice the speed? Uh, you know, speed in speed mid corner. So it. Uh, well, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it how it plays out and whether whether uh, whether your theory is is right or not that we won't see so much overtaking or whether people will risk overtaking and then you know just end up running wide and losing out again. Oh, it's mostly just overtaking Lorenzo in that case, David. <laughs> I think that uh, as I said, once he hits the front, it's going to be it's going to be tough. But you you brought up sacrificing speed there. Honda, of course, like we've seen it again this winter. They look, they look to be lost at this point. And when myself and Neil were down at the Horath test, it seems that they haven't really made too much progress since then. What what was the general feeling from the Honda riders, Dave? Uh, they were all trying to uh, trying their absolute utmost not to say that Honda have made a complete dog's dinner of this. Um, it was, I mean. <sighs> 
basically uh, because Honda had bought yet another new engine uh, in addition to the to the Valencia one, which had taken again uh, yet another step in the in the same direction. They said they, that the the difference between the 2015 engine and the Valencia engine was very small; you could barely feel it. Uh, the difference between the 2000 uh, or between the Valencia engine and the Sepang engine was bigger. There was more feeling off the bottom. There was a, a, a better response off the bottom, but it's still way too aggressive. And they're still having exactly the same problems with the ele- electronics um, uh, trying to tame it. So they, I mean, it's hard to see it any other way than as Honda having real, real problems and exactly the same problems as last year. Do you think our Honda is lost now as they were at the in the eight hundred era? Because we saw then that it took them years to to figure out how to actually develop the eight hundred. They needed Stoner to really to come in to take charge of that as well and actually to win with that bike. And now we're seeing them make the same mistakes time and time again with the with the new bike. I, I think um, uh, one thing about I, I sort of agree. Uh, about the 800 era but then there's more to the 800 era than that because again I mean Pedrosa actually did a good job of um, of pointing that bike in the in the right direction it, it, there had already been made some uh, it had already made some you know major steps forward by the time uh, Stoner uh, came in and 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 signed for Honda. Um, it's just that there was a cultural thing. That one of the uh, one of the HRC engineers, I think the the, the boss of HRC, left at two thousand at the beginning of two thousand and nine, and that was when Nakamoto came in. But they seemed just to have, uh, have fallen back into uh, old uh, old bad habits of chasing horsepower rather than chasing rideability so are they as lost as in the 800 era not quite but there's i mean they're in a they're they're in a fairly they're in a fairly deep hole and they're still the bike is still capable of of, of putting in decent laps because some of the lap times were pretty good but over the over the course of a race i think they're going to have real problems yeah, definitely, definitely does look like the the old habits are dying hard in it. But Neil, on the basis of the Hareth test, whenever you stood there trackside and you looked at the bike, what you've you've heard and what you've seen from uh, Sepang, what do you think about uh, Honda's chances of actually? You know, there's six weeks until the first race of the year for them actually to be able to start the season from a position of strength. I think it's. Uh, I think it's, it, at the moment it looks like it's going to be a, a tall order. Um, just reading between the lines from what Mark, Cal, and Danny were saying throughout the three days, you know that they, they do seem to be a long way off, and to, for them to still be saying on the final day of the Sepang test that they're not sure which direction to take, but Rosa still seemed like completely lost with the electronic setup. Something that I was surprised at at the end of the Hareth test for him still to be saying the same things, um, you know, after HRC engineers and technicians have been fiddling with the electronics and trying to work out, you know, the settings in, a, you know, in a workshop in Japan. Um, you know, I find that quite, um, quite surprising, quite baffling. Um, I think, you know, looking obviously we're judging this just um, on the first test of the year so it's dangerous to do so but Yamaha seems to be very very competitive at the moment and then you have to imagine that Bradley Smith or Paul Spargo will be somewhere in the mix for the final podium uh, slot as, as well as the Ducatis the Davizioso and Iannone and then probably the GP15s will be quite well sorted I would say at the start of the season too um, yeah it seems like you know Honda could have a real fight in their hands the first part of this year um, before they get a real understanding of these electronics um, to even be fighting for podiums. Yeah, because it's 
it, it's quite timely that we have two riders that left Honda to go to Ducati. You've got Redding that left VDS, Stoner that left as a test rider to join Ducati as well. And both of them have said pretty much the same things, that the, the GP15 that both of them rode is a big step forward over what they had experienced with the Honda. They talked in terms of just being able to use the electronics. It was a lot easier. Just... um general feeling from the bike as well stoner talked a lot about the engine and the power delivery and even though that there's more power in the uh, or more top end in the ducati it delivers it a lot smoother david what was um what was the general feeling from from them whenever they were comparing back to the honda well whenever riders switch switch manufacturers they're always uh, very careful about what they can and can't say um i didn't get a chance to speak to scott because it was incredibly complicated just trying to figure out i mean tests are always a mess in terms of trying to actually talk to riders uh, just just logistically trying to trying to find them all but no i mean he he really seemed happily happy enough the 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 the, the team whenever i spoke to people from the team they all seemed you know really really happy uh and he just looked he looked like a different rider watching him out on track he looked so comfortable he looked like he was you know just riding again not uh trying to uh, well trying not to get killed by the bike um he he was out he could ride you know smoothly aggressively he looked he looked like he was riding really uh yeah really really naturally and to go back to uh, to the honda a little bit i i can't remember if it was uh, marquez or or crutchlow said that they were really surprised not to see uh, pedrosa at the top of the timesheets because you know look what he did at um uh, look at the race in october you know he was just basically unbeatable this is this is sepang really is is danny's track and uh for him to be and honda's track yeah and, and and honda's track true yeah yeah exactly so for them to be this far back at this point in the year is uh it, it's got to be a worry for it's got to be a worry for honda i mean honda have have won at sepang every year since 2010 uh, i think a Honda rider has been on pole for the last five times we've gone there. Last year, Marquez was just, you know, untouchable really at the at the, the test in Sepang. Um, so, you know, if there was one track that they could test that and they could they could run well, it would be here. So I think that that, that is worrying in itself. I think on the second day, Marquez was talking, sorry, Marquez was asked just where exactly he was struggling with the electronics. And he said, basically, from the touch of the gas all the way until the breaking point um, at the, the next corner, which suggests that just, you know, basically the whole acceleration part of the electronics is just, you know, really out of kilter. Um, and I think I, I heard you ask in one of the debriefs, David, you, you asked, you said the, you know, the, the transmission sound sounded less smooth. And Marquez admitted that, you know, the, the electronics were almost negating some of the effectiveness of the of their seamless gear box which you know is, is a big problem yeah i mean that what was what surprised me most um uh, going out and, and sort of standing trackside uh last year when i went down there uh, I think last year and the year before when Honda were using the fully seamless gearbox because uh, I was standing at the same point in the track and you basically you couldn't hear the Hondas actually change down it sounded like they were on you know one of these big automatic scooters uh, it just sort of went uh um, but it, there, there was a real kick to it you could hear every uh, 
down gear change and there was a kick to it as well there was there, there was it was much more it was sort of uh, in terms of audio in terms of the sound there was much more of a kick to it much more of a punch to it so there was clearly the elect they are really having elect- problems with the electronics yeah, I think Mark has said on the final day that if you were to look at consistency, although they're still a far way away from being able to do a you know a feasible or a positive uh, race run, Mark has said at least he was losing one second to Lorenzo in terms of um, you know consistent lap times, which is quite a big margin. Um, but do you have just a question for you? Um, obviously, you were you were there speaking to Danny and to Mark, to Cal as well. Um, when Steve and I were in Hareth, they were still smiling. They were still obviously putting that brave face on it. Was there a sense? that either of them were getting fed up like really fed up or, you know was it was the kind of mask of uh, of corporate friendliness beginning to slip yeah they were very careful to say exactly the right things but um, it was very clear that they were not uh, they were not happy bunnies at all um, the answers they were giving were I mean they were a lot more I mean Riders, especially factory riders, are always very, very cautious in the various things that they say. Um, uh, you know, even their criticisms are, are very carefully worded because if they use the wrong words, then generally, you know, they're paying the price of a small car to uh, uh, <laughs> in fines, in PR fines. Um, and um, but there, there was a real criticism, especially from Pedrosa. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what Pedrosa said, but you know, he said, you know, they, they basically. He basically said the guys not a really. They need to sit down, take a look at this, go back to the factory, and and really start to start to work on this. They they have a lot of work to do. Yeah, Danny, the master, the complete master of understatement. I think one of uh, my favorite quotes from from the whole test was uh, Pedroza was asked specifically, you know, the biggest where's the biggest disadvantage with electronics, and he just said the behavior of the bike. <laughs> 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 without wishing to be specific in any way whatsoever yeah exactly yeah, yeah. That, that was Danny also I think said uh, what, what's the ba- the main areas that need to improve and it's like oh we just need to get a bit better under braking a little bit on turning a bit when we're on full lean then when we're getting on the gas and then when we're fully upright but once we do all that we'll be fine <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, I I really think that a lot of their problems are, uh, well, they have two problems. One is the engine, which is still too aggressive, but really um, uh, to actually solve that, they need to uh, really understand the the electronics and they're still a long way from from doing that. That, that, That's their biggest obstacle to find out where the real issues are because of the electronics. I read in the first day that Mark was using his 2014 chassis. Yeah. Um, but then he he changed to a totally new chassis. Then after that, David or uh, I can't remember. Let's see. He used uh, because he uh, uh, I think he started on the chassis that he was using in uh, uh, last year, and then they changed back to a chassis uh, the, the 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 chassis that he started the season on in 2014 uh, or 2015 rather. Um, so he started on the 2014 chassis and then went to the 2015 chassis, the one which he got rid of after Barcelona. Uh, and I think there was also, I think there was also a completely new chassis. But um, uh, the Honda chassis, Honda, you know, they they 
basically every rider gets their own, gets gets a different bike. So it's it, it's hard to keep uh, it's hard to keep exact exact track of. But I mean, it, it's certainly in terms of the direction um, because the the the. Uh, the, the the chassis which Marquez tested, which he had discarded, that was the chassis which was ended up being just too stiff in the uh, uh, at the front of the bike, uh, and that they had to step away from uh, just because it was too stiff. Which would make sense if you're trying to get some feel from your front tire. I think on the final day as well, um, Cal Crutzlow was asked to test the their new engine from the end of 2015. So the the yeah. engine that. Uh, both Pedroza and Marquez rode in um, in Valencia and, and Jerez, and he was saying that it was just very difficult to compare because obviously Honda are now developing their electronics around the newer engine, um, so they're kind of almost putting all their eggs in the basket of this newer engine, um, which you know if it's not really um, any great step forward on what they had before, yeah, it could be problematic. Well, yeah, but uh, but then it, if it's not so different, perhaps not. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, I, the impression I got that these the the engine is engine development is moving in the right direction. It's just that it's not moving. Uh, in the right direction fast enough they what they really need was a was a very different engine and they're not getting that uh, but the trouble with developing a new engine you really saw with with Suzuki because Suzuki bought a brand new engine for uh, Vinales and Espargaro um, uh, which was a, a really a massive improvement uh, Vinales said he was really happy because for the first time uh, he was sitting behind Mark Marquez on the front straight and he could actually you know he wasn't losing any grounds to him and that had never happened to him uh, to him before but Espargaro actually got through i think two or three engines uh, he had uh, he had three engines blow up on him uh, uh, during the test which were these these new engines so you know but actually building a new engine even though it's not massively different it it it, it, it places, places a lot of strain on the on the engine and a lot of room for error yeah and i guess that that has to be um the, i think when you're looking at Suzuki's new engine, um, Espargaro's comments from the first day seemed to be very positive in that he was saying that he, he wasn't even riding with any electronics whatsoever. Um, and he was he was kind of riding around tentatively uh, without traction control. And he said that even then, the characteristics of the engine were, were quite good. And I think you wrote in your in your end-of-day report, David, that, you know, it's a lot better that, um, you know, they're still having some issues with electronics, obviously, engine braking in particular. But it's a lot better that it's that way around rather than having an engine that's completely dysfunctional and having to use too many electronics to sort it out. Yeah, exactly. Once again, they're using – they have exactly the same problem that they had with um, – um, uh, or, or well, they're using exactly the same approach which Yamaha used and which Ducati used, where you had a really good engine, um, which was uh, uh, you, you know you just have a usable bike, a bike which which is good as it is, and then you try and make it fast with electronics rather than the Honda approach, which you know b b build build the most ferocious machine you can and then see what you can do to actually turn it into make it usable. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I think at the end of the final day, um, the Suzuki riders were using a bit of a mishmash. They were using the, the new engine with um, the 2015 frame. Um, both riders, I think, were, were quite positive and felt that they could they could set some very good times with that. Um, but then Espargaro had to go back and test the 16 frame, which he didn't feel was as good. Um, and, and they both seemed to have slightly different opinions of the, of the strengths of the 2016 frame. Uh, I wouldn't say slightly different. I'd say <laughs> diametrically opposed. Um, uh, I think it was... Um, 
uh, um, I think Espargaro, I, I can't remember which way around it was, um, uh, but I think it was Espargaro saying that um, he had grip but couldn't get the bike to turn. And Vinales. Yeah, that was, it was, was Vinales said that. Ah, right. So it was yeah, yeah. Vinales saying, you know, it, it was better because he had loads of grip and couldn't get the bike to turn. And Espargaro was saying, oh, the bike turns much better, but it hasn't got any grip. So um, uh, that suggests that they there is still a lot of work uh, to do there. But they, they also tried the new uh, seamless gearbox, which was um, a big step forward. It was what they were calling the, the, the you know, the version one of the, of the seamless gearbox which is only seamless for up changes at Phillip Island. They're supposed to be bringing uh, the second version, which is uh, seamless for uh, up and down changes. And then I think there's going to be a third version of it as well, um, a more refined version, which will come later in the uh, later in the year. But I mean, it, I was last year. I was worried about Suzuki being competitive because it's they've so often they've made a bike which is uh, strong uh, or you know nearly there but never made that step forward it's always been a little you know there's always been a, a shortcoming somewhere and it it, it felt like they had uh, that, that they changed it now. That that that's you know they they'd made the difference and they they actually had the bike to uh, uh, to be properly competitive in 2016. Uh, I wasn't there on the final day, David, but just from listening to the the debriefs, um, was I was I right in sensing a little bit of nickel between the two Suzuki men? Um, because Ali said on on the final day that basically he wanted to continue running the 2015 chassis, which he prefers, with the 2016 engine, which he prefers. Um, but Suzuki said, like, look, we need to try and get more data and acquire more information with the 16 frame, and he said that Vinales kind of refused to do that and he said that once or twice in his debrief you know and he seemed to be suggesting that you know he wasn't quite prepared to put the you know the dirty work in as i think as well he said i think that uh i think that we're going to see more of this i think it is basically there is a certain amount of jockeying for position with uh, within teams where you've got two factory riders each looking at each other because uh, you had exactly the same thing in in yamaha where uh, lorenzo was getting on uh, almost working on bike setup and a few other things and they were throwing parts of uh, valentina rossi and it was rossi who was trying out who spent a lot more time going between the very the the, the different chassis which they had there uh, whereas uh, Lorenzo was just on the what we call the hybrid which is the the, the 2000 uh, well the, the 2016 chassis but without the um, uh, without the uh, fuel tank at the rear so uh, yeah there was uh, again it's the the disadvantage for Espargaro of being the more experienced of the two riders uh, you know he's been in MotoGP for a long time he's ridden lots of different bikes um, Vinales is this is just his second year so yeah obviously when you have more parts to test you throw it at the more experienced rider who can give you lots of feedback and again uh, I know uh, Steve you've spoken to Tom O'Kane quite a lot uh, uh, last year and he's very very bullish on um, on Espargaro as a rider, he he really rates Alesha as a, uh, a, a you know a, as a talented rider with, with great feedback. Yeah, one thing that Tom's always said is that just because Alesha had such a varied career, coming from one manufacturer to another, going back to Moto Two, coming back up to Moto GP, going on the CRT bike and now on the Suzuki, 
he's very well rounded for what he feels a bike needs and he's able to give good feedback straight away so that's one reason why you'll 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 use him for a lot of your development work as well obviously for a she wants to be going out setting fast times as well so it's just finding that balancing point there but the key thing for suzuki is just that by the time we get to qatar that they have the most competitive bike they can and if the solution to that is is basically just putting a, a leash out to do some of the grunt work then then so be it yeah and it's also a, it's a it's another reason to um it's, it's another reason to basically say that we shouldn't be drawing too many conclusions from this first test because you know suzuki and the factory ducati riders especially were both commenting on how basically the final two days more or less they were in and out of the pits they were in the pits more often than they were out in track and you know they weren't basically getting they weren't um, in their full race trim you know basically on the setup that they felt could take them to the fastest lap time um, so you'd have to say with Suzuki and with um, Ianone and Davizioso there's still a big margin to improve yeah there's, there's a reason why testing is always called the phony war and even though everyone's out in the racetrack at the same time they've all got different vari- variables at this point we don't know fuel loads tires we don't know how many miles are on the tires we don't know basically the program everyone's working through so it's it's only when we get to qualifying in qatar that we'll start to get any sort of answers we have another six days of testing but it's just another case of just teams just clicking off their uh, their programs yeah i i don't even think that um uh we'll learn everything at Qatar I think obviously by the time we get to Qatar the teams are going to be an awful lot more uh, prepared uh, the factories will have a lot more information uh, but there's still an awful lot of development work uh, uh, to be done and, and as we saw last year where the Honda started off being nowhere and, and ended up being competitive I mean uh, halfway through the, through the season um, we've got that but then you know almost in spades because there's so much more work for all of the factories all of the teams uh, to do so, I think uh, I, I think there's going to be a real back and forth and a real a real change in uh, in the various strengths of the various teams. Actually, th- certainly until the first half, uh, until the end of the first half of this season, I think until certainly until the you know the the test, basically the test at um, uh, at Barcelona. Uh, yeah, you're 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 right with that, David. I think this year of all years, with so many changes, it's going to take us. A long time through the season before we really find out exactly how everyone is is uh, is positioned on the grid. I think the first test like this it does give us a good indication that Yamaha has carried forward their potential from last year. Ducati's made good steps forward as well, and we're able to see that uh, Honda's still got a lot of work left to do. Suzuki seems to be aggressively developing their bike now this year, so it does look like uh, by the time we get to Qatar, there will be some answers to questions, but just not the the full picture. Yeah, I mean, d- 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 the. the- my dark horse was Bradley Smith because of the the work he was doing. He was taking exactly the same pro- approach as last year, working through a program, trying out a lot of things. Um, uh, the race simulation that he did was actually quite impressive. I think uh, someone actually, uh, well, I'll crash on it. I don't know if it was Neil or whether it was Pete. Yeah, it was Pete. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, actually sort of, you know, compared the, 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 the lap times of the race simulation and the race last year, I think it might be more interesting to see a comparison of a race simulation from last year and a, and a race simulation from, from this year. But um, uh, again, if you look at where 
Bradley is on the uh, Bradley Smith is on the, on the timesheets. It looks uh, it, it doesn't look uh, all that impressive. But then you see he set his fast time on the hard tire, same as Cal. Cal Crutchlow the same. They both set their uh, their best time of the uh, of the test on a hard tire. Um, they did a lot of work. Smith again did an awful lot of work just working on a base setup, and so he's going to be a little bit under the radar. But come uh, uh, come Qatar, he's going to be there or thereabouts. Yeah, excluding his uh, excluding the first lap of his race simulation at the test last week, um, I think Bradley was four seconds faster than his race time from October, um, which is quite impressive, all things considered. Um, and I think there was something like, um, you know, there was a basically there was. 0.2 of a second more in the variation from his worst lap to his best lap in this test um, compared to uh, compared to last um, last year. You know, so considering all, you know all the changes, new tires, new electronics, it's quite impressive. And Joe Bradley is already in quite good shape. Yeah, exactly. And to actually be that close to your uh, variation in lap times is. Uh, so early in the season, new tyres, new electronics, it shows that they really are close. I would have expected that gap to be much, much bigger. Yeah, me too, me too. Uh, okay, guys, that uh, covers everything from the Sepang test. So we'll bring the show to a close. And uh, just again, thank you to everyone for listening to this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, if you enjoy listening to the show, if you follow us on iTunes, if you just give us a rating and a review, it means that it's much easier for other MotoGP fans to find the podcast. If you're following us on Facebook, again, we're on facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And we're on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. So thanks again for listening and thanks again, Neil and David, and uh, we'll see you all next week. See you next week. I was going to say, I was going to say, we're also on on SoundCloud, but then I can't remember where it's SoundCloud verse slash Paddock slash Pass. Well, I can't remember what the fucking URL yeah, is. Yeah, like, that, that's, that's the thing. It's There's too much, there's too much on the SoundCloud when that's where once we get the website built, it's an yeah. awful lot easier just to say, <laughs> Just go to whatever. Got a so, fucking no. website. Yeah, <laughs> fucking right. Yeah. yeah. What a professional you are, Steve. Yes. Very, very nice. Yes. Very nice. Nicely done. Right. right. That's us. Good, good job, chaps. Yes, thank you very much. Oh, wait a minute. I can switch off now. I shall press. Re- I, I, I've pressed record on mine. It's running. Okay. Find okay. Mine's too. I've just pressed mine as well. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, we need to we need to do something to sync up, so we all need to clap in three seconds. Okay. So three, two, one. That was probably it's close enough. <laughs> it was a bit <laughs> shit, really, but uh, never mind. <laughs> Would you like to go again, Dave? <laughs> no. <laughs> three, two, one. We'd make that a was, fu- fuck it. It's close enough, JB. Walk away with us. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, if this doesn't work out, we can always start a fucking acabella band. <laughs> so it's just like to say. <laughs> Could work quite well. <laughs>